As we get started this morning, let me begin by asking you a question. Start with a question and see if that can get the juices flowing a little bit for us this morning. The question is simply this, uh, what is the Christian life? If someone were to ask you this morning, perhaps the person sitting next to you in the pew out there, can you explain the Christian life to me? What is it? What is it? What's the essence of it? How do you you define it? How How do you describe it? What would you say? How would you go about answering their inquiry? Well, we might think about morality and ethics. That perhaps would come to mind that the Christian life is a, is a, is a life of holiness and, and morality and, and biblical ethics, but, but that doesn't really summarize it. It's, it's not simply a moral code that we follow. But there are clearly very definite moral obligations and requirements that are very much a part of the Christian life. So so to speak of it in terms of morality is is not enough. It doesn't capture it. Perhaps you're more of the theology-minded kind of individual. And so for you, you you would think about the Christian life in terms of a of a set of, of theological statements or, or, or truth propositions, things that need to be believed and, and affirmed. That's what the Christian life is about. It's, a, it's about a doctrinal statement. It's, it's, a, it's about a confession of faith. That's true. There are some very clear and non-negotiable truths that are essential to the Christian faith, and and all Christians in all places, in all times, knew and know they must and do believe these things, and indeed they're, they're willing to die rather than give them up. But a doctrinal statement, a doctrinal formulation itself doesn't, it's not enough to to capture the Christian life. It, it doesn't get to the essence of the Christian life. Maybe you're more of the simple type, and so for you, you would say the Christian life is, a, is about loving God and loving our fellow man, right? The two great commandments. That, that's the Christian life. Love God and love our neighbor. Very true. These are the two great commandments. Problem is, is, is which God? Which God are you talking about? I mean, there are all kinds of gods out there. So, so if this is to summarize the Christian life, which God are you talking about? What does it mean to love? Is that something each of us gets to define on our own? We choose the God, we choose what it means to love. Is that the Christian life? No, it's more. It's more. At its core, the Christian life is a living, vital relationship with the triune God. It is a living and vital relationship with the triune God. This relationship was determined before time by God the Father without reference to our desires or our lineage or our social standing. John chapter 1, verse 13. This vital living relationship with the triune God was made certain through the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. This loving and vital relationship is entered into individually by grace alone, through faith alone, without reference to our moral standing. Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 8 and 9. This vital living relationship with the triune God has been initiated, guaranteed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who through the application of the scriptures transforms God's enemies into his sons, that they might bear the family likeness. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. This morning, it is the Holy Spirit's role in transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ that that will capture our focus and attention. And we're going to do it in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, and I invite you to turn there. And verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. We're returning to this text this week. And as we interrogate this powerful text, I want to do so through a series of questions. I want to ask and answer a series of questions that are drawn from and then explicit and implicit in this text so we understand, so that we understand and live under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me just read the text for you. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Two weeks ago, we began our interrogation of this text with the first question, and it was simply this, why is this study so important? Why is the study of Verse 18 of chapter 5, so important that it would cause us to slow down and spend multiple weeks looking at this one verse. Why couldn't we just move through it and beyond it and and get into some of the other parts of chapter 5 that I know you're dying for me to get to? The reason it is so important that we take our time in this particular verse is because it is impossible to live as Christians without the Spirit's enablement. Impossible. We cannot live the Christian life without the active enablement and involvement of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we need to understand what Paul is talking about here. Without a good understanding of how the Spirit enables us to live a life pleasing to God, we are going to end up frustrated. We're going to end up defeated far too often. Far too often. To get a an idea of how important this verse is. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Ephesians, he says the following, and I don't think he's overstating it here, but he says, outside of the command for unbelievers to trust in Christ for salvation, there is no more practical and necessary command in Scripture than the one for believers to be filled with the Spirit. Did you catch that? No more practical and necessary command. So this is, to be a practical study, and it is a necessary study, that we might understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Why is it so important? 
Secondly, second question. Why warn about wine? And do not get drunk with wine. Why wine? What, what is, why does Paul introduce a prohibition against drunkenness in a text about the spiritual life and the, and the involvement of the Holy Spirit of God? If you go back two weeks and either look at your notes or check it out on the website and, and hear that sermon, I can give you a much fuller answer there. But, but to boil it down, what we looked at last time, is simply this. Why? Why the wine? Why the prohibition about drunkenness? is, is simply this. Drunkenness leads to asotia is the Greek word translated for us in the English as dissipation or debauchery. Drunkenness leads to debauchery. Drunkenness leads to dissipation. It is characteristic of spiritual darkness. It is the antithesis of the work of the Holy Spirit. Played out this past week on millions of television screens across America and likely a good bit of the free world, was a, a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Now, regardless of what you think about the individuals involved, I'm not here to talk about that. But one observation that, that stood out to me is drunkenness was involved in the whole sordid affair. Drunkenness. Young people, let me speak to you this morning. Two things. Drunkenness leads to debauchery. It leads to debauchery, to dissipation, to asotia. No good comes of it. Wickedness is what comes of it. And you live in a world in which nothing is forgotten. Social media, the internet... Everything is captured forever. Stupid, wicked decisions of childhood can come back later in life and cause devastating consequences. Old sins cast long shadows. Write it down. Old sins cast long shadows. Be wise. Be wise. Why does Paul contrast drunkenness with being filled by the Spirit? The reason is, is because he is presenting here two contrasting lifestyles. Two contrasting lifestyles. One, dissipation. Asotia, debauchery. That's one lifestyle. And the other is moral excellence and power. One belongs to the old man, still in Adam. The other belongs to the new creation in union with Christ. It is light and darkness. It is, it is night and day. It is, it is east and west. It is, is far removed from one another. But beyond that, beyond that, there's a, there's a point of contact here between drunkenness and the filling of the Spirit. And the contrast that Paul is making here is not between wine and the Spirit. That's not what he is contrasting in this text. 
He is not contrasting wine in the spirit, but instead what he is contrasting is the state of drunkenness that leads to dissipation and the state of being filled by the spirit, which leads to a godly, God-pleasing life and a life that shows itself in the church and in the home and in the community. And, And you see that beginning in verse 19 and running all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. And, and you remember three weeks ago, I guess it was, we, we set up the, the whole structure of this section. And being filled by the Spirit is the, is the, is the commanding uh, verb that, that opens up the rest of the section here. He who is filled by the Spirit, it will show itself. And it will show itself in the in the in how one speaks and interacts within the church, how one how one speaks and interacts within the home, and how one speaks and interacts within the community at large. It is a night and day contrast. This analogy that, that Paul speaks of here, it's, it provides a wonderful bridge into what he's about to talk about because he has been talking in chapter 4 in the beginning part here, the first half of chapter 5, about the life of darkness, that this is who we used to be and we're not to be like that anymore. We're put off that old man and to put on the new man in Christ, right? And now he comes over and he says, well, how do we do that? We walk by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. So this is a very, very important verse. It is a a bridge verse. It illustrates and it introduces the topic of the filling of the Spirit. Third question. Third question. What is the filling of the Spirit? What is it? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. There is no good way that I'm aware of of getting at the meaning of Paul's words here without dipping our toe into the waters of Greek grammar. And you, you won't believe how much this week I have struggled with that because, uh, yeah, because it's Greek grammar. How can I help you in this? Let me try. Because it's essential. Let me try. The Greek word translated filled is the verb plerao. The verb plerao. It is also used in chapter 3 and verse 19, where there Paul says, To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, there's your verb, to all the fullness of God. It also appears in verse 10 of chapter 4. He who descended, Christ, is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might, here's your verb, fill all things. The noun form, plerares, is used in chapter 1, verse 23, where it talks about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This verb, plerao, is a verb that is used a lot of places in the New Testament. It appears 84 times, 84 times in the New Testament. And it has, in all of these, it, it, it means basically to fill up, to fill up. Now, and it, and it can be speaking in the physical realm of, of to fill up content, So, for example, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 48, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew 13, verse 48, it's used to to speak of a a dragnet filled with fish, to to fill up the fishing net, Matthew 13, 48. 
It also is used metaphorically, and in that case, it has more of the idea to, to fully influence. So, for example, John 16, 6, a heart filled with sorrow, filled with sorrow, is a heart that is, that is fully influenced by sorrow. Here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, and we've just stepped a little deeper into the water, okay? You're, you're like the water's up to the top of your toes. It's going to go over your ankles here. But I promise that's as deep as I'll go. So here in chapter 5, verse 18, plerao is used in conjunction with a, with a particular prepositional phrase that can be translated, this, this preposition, this Greek preposition n, let's just put it that way, the Greek preposition n, can be translated in, by, or with. So in other words, in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled in the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit. So which is it? Which is it? Because they all have different ideas. To be filled in the Spirit would, would be speaking of the human spirit. To be filled by the Spirit would be talking about what the Spirit does. To be filled with the Spirit would be, would be to speak of the Spirit as the content of the filling. The deciding factor, I believe, in determining how to best translate the preposition here is the fact that it occurs in what's called the dative case. All you Greek people, there it is. Okay. When the dative is used with the verb plerao in the New Testament, it never refers to content. It's called an instrumental dative. Meaning that with the Spirit would not be the best rendering. The better grammatical rendering is to speak of by the Spirit, which is to speak of the means of the filling. But be filled by means of the Spirit. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I have a water glass. It's always up here. By the way, whoever put ice in it this morning, thank you. Must mostly, must much appreciated. My water glass was filled by means of a faucet. Not with the faucet. Although you could say that. But if you were to say it was filled with the faucet, you would be communicating that the faucet is the content of the, what filled the glass. So this instrumental dative is, I believe, best translated as by. Now, I've got a big problem. And my big problem is none of the English translations agree. <laughs> none of them agree. And that is a problem, for sure. For sure. However... However, the, the recognition that this is the instrumental use of the dative case with the verb plerao is very well attested in all the modern Greek grammars and virtually all of the modern technical commentaries. So although it hasn't made its way into the English translations of the Bible yet, it is the predominant view of those who make a livelihood, uh, give their lives to the study of Greek grammar. So I am not way out on a limb here. Okay? I am not way out on a limb. 
Now, the argument for seeing the Spirit as the content of the filling, which is what is communicated in, in your English Bible that's sitting in front of you, right? Be filled with the Spirit, is, is driven. They don't make a grammatical argument. They make a contextual argument. And the contextual argument they, they make is that Paul is comparing wine and the Spirit, Rather than what I believe he is comparing here is drunkenness versus spirit influence. That that's the contrast that he is drawing out here. And grammatically, the use of the, of the dative here points to that. Where are we up to? Ankles? Okay, sideways step then. Or either that or the bottom is flat. There are three observations that I need to, to introduce here that are, that are inherent in the verb plerao as to how, it is, how Paul is using it here. He is using a present passive imperative form of the verb plerao. A present passive imperative. Please hang on. Please hang on. That communicates three important things to us. Three important things. This is practical. Okay? This is practical, but... But it can't be practical until it's properly understood. So there are three important things communicated by the verb form that Paul uses here, the present passive imperative. Okay, here they are. Number one, the fact that it's a present tense verb is that the action of the verb is repeated. It is ongoing. There's not a once and done. But there is an ongoing action here to the verb. It's in the imperatival mood. In other words, it's a command to be obeyed. It's a command that must be obeyed. It's in the imperatival mood. It's in the passive voice. That means we are the recipients of the action of the verb. In other words, we cannot fill ourselves. We cannot fill ourselves. The verb could be literally rendered, be being filled. Okay, be, the command, being, ongoing action, filled, something happening upon us from the outside. Okay, so be being filled, keep being filled by the Spirit. So when you pull it all together, when you pull together, okay, we're, we're coming out of the pool. When you pull all of that together, what Paul is commanding the Ephesian believers and by application what he is commanding you and I as children of the living God this morning is that we are to allow ourselves to be continually filled by the Spirit no matter where we are or no matter what we're doing. To be filled by the Spirit is to live in a way that is fully influenced by the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit is to live in a way that is fully influenced by the Spirit, willingly yielding ourselves to the Spirit's control. It is to put ourselves continually in a position in which the Spirit has free reign in our lives. A command to be obeyed. To put ourselves in that place, willingly yielding ourselves that the Spirit might have full access to our lives.
To be filled by the Spirit is a, is a continuing experience of a certain quality of life. It is a quality of life. Versus what some Bible teachers have taught through the years, that it is a one-time or others a repeated crisis event. Depending on your background, that may have been the way it has been taught to you. That you become filled with the Spirit in, in a moment of crisis. You, 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 you pray. There's this great spiritual crisis. There's this great struggle going on. And, and you pray for the Spirit to fill you. And, and there is this moment in which, bang, you achieve some, I call it a holy hop, some, some elevated jump in which, the, in which the, the, the temptation of sin is, is either removed in the extreme or, or it is significantly lessened and, and some great power for evangelism and soul winning and so forth comes upon you. That's not what Paul's talking about. Within the... Pentecostal movement, that understanding that this, this coming of the Spirit on you, this being filled with the Spirit, they would say manifests itself in the speaking in tongues. It's something to be sought, to be prayed for, and then it happens. That's not what the verse is talking about. Doesn't fit the grammar, doesn't fit the context. When we talk about being filled by the Spirit, it's not that we gain more of the Spirit, but the Spirit gains more of us. It's not that we gain more of Him, it's that He gains more of us. In other words, that we give Him access to our lives in a greater way. Now, there are a lot of similarities here between Paul's command in Ephesians 5.18 here and his command over in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, and I'll go ahead and direct you over there, with regard to walking in the Spirit. Another metaphor. Okay? To be filled by the Spirit is to be fully influenced by the Spirit. Right? Dative case. The command to, to, to walk by the Spirit and, and to be filled by the Spirit speak of the, of the believer living in such a way that the Spirit is directing and empowering them to live a life pleasing to God and to His will. Right? Notice, keep your thumb there in Galatians, but just notice back here in Ephesians 5, in verse 17, right? Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. We know the will of the Lord as the Spirit reveals it to us through the Word of God. So back here in Galatians 5, verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh says his desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, they are, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and the idea here is if we stay in step with the Spirit, let us also walk by, 
or excuse me, if we live by the Spirit, let us also uh, walk by the Spirit. The idea is to stay in step with the Spirit, to kind of maybe have His arm around you as you walk. Notice Paul here in Galatians 5, he, he, he lists the, the contrast between, right, the life of darkness and the life of light, the life in Adam and the life in Christ. The same kinds of things that he talks about here, go back to, to chapter 5 of Ephesians, the same things he talked about in, in chapter 4 and 5 here, beginning 4 beginning in verse 17, chapter 4 of Ephesians and running all the way here through chapter 5 and verse 14, the, the light-darkness contrast. It is the Spirit who directs and empowers us in this battle that, that's going on. As we allow ourselves to be moment and by moment controlled by, under the influence of the, the Holy Spirit, we are thrust into this flesh-spirit conflict that Paul talks about there in Galatians 5. It's a war. It's a war. Hundred and fifty years ago, hundred and fifty years ago, uh, if you were a visitor to, to Eastern Virginia, you would have encountered a, a, a seventy-five square mile section of the most dense woods with thick, thick underbrush that was known as the wilderness of Spotsylvania, not Transylvania, Spotsylvania. Okay? This was an impenetrable wilderness area. It had several roads that bisected it, but that was it. This wilderness area is located about 50 miles south of Washington, D.C. and was the site of two significant Civil War battles. Two significant Civil War battles a year apart. The first, in May of 1863, was the Battle of Chancellorsville. It was conducted there in what's called the Wilderness, or the Thicket. In the Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863, probably the most significant outcome of that battle is that the Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson lost his life to friendly fire. They got confused in the, in, the, in the thicket, and he got out ahead of his lines, and he was shot by a Confederate picket. He died a few days later. And the Confederacy was deprived of one of their most successful battlefield generals, Stonewall Jackson. A year later, in May of 1864, it was the Battle of the Wilderness. That's what it's known as, the Battle of the Wilderness, so they're sometimes called the Battle of Spotsylvania. There, Robert E. Lee, in that dense thicket, fought the new Union general, Ulysses S. Grant, to a standstill. Probably the most significant thing to come of that was that unlike all the prior Union generals, he did not retreat. He did not withdraw his army to lick their wounds and come back next year. But he continued to press and press and press the offensive, eventually leading to the fall of the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. So this, this dense undergrowth, this thicket, where these two significant battles occurred, it was a, it was a tangle of woods, and it, and it produced in the, in the heat of the battle, and you remember these are black powder you know, rifles and muskets and, and cannon. And so there's just, there's all of this fog of war literally going on around them. And, and, it, and it brought massive confusion, immense confusion. They were disoriented. You couldn't see very far in front of you at all. There were ferocious close quarter combat and there were tremendous casualties. 
So why am I telling you all this stuff? I'm telling you all this stuff because it, but it, it kind of illustrates. It, what it kind of does is it illustrates the battleground of the spirit of the flesh in my life and yours if you're a Christian this morning. The battle of the spirit with the flesh is ferocious. It is, it is confusing. It is continual, and, and, it, and it covers every aspect of our lives. In other words, there, there is no safety. There's no behind the lines where you can go and just sort of rest and relax. It's going on all around you and in you. It's ferocious. There is a battle raging right now. For our attitudes, for our actions, for our emotions, and, and for our thoughts. All of it is engaged in this, in this ferocious battle. And, and the victory in battle will only come as we are filled by the Spirit. Only as we're filled by the Spirit. The skirmishes of this battle, as I say, are everywhere. They pull in our, our attitudes about life. They, they, they pull in our actions, what we do, what we don't do. They pull in our emotions, how we feel about things. They pull in our thought life. Nothing's safe. Nothing's free from the combat. You won't be free. I'm not going to be free ever until the Lord takes me home. That's my rest. That's when the battle is over. That's when I'm be, you know, safely behind the lines, as it were. And until then, it's a fight. And it's not a fight that, that you can win on your own. It's not a fight I can win on my own. If I'm battling you know, the flesh with the flesh, there's nothing but destruction. The only way I'm going to gain a measure of victory here is to walk by the Spirit, is to be filled by the Spirit. As I say, the skirmishes of this battle are many and they're varied. Such as when the boss yells at you tomorrow morning at work. You get to work, he or she tears your head off. How are you going to react? What are you going to say? What are you going to think? Maybe you're in a position presently with your employer where you're overworked, underappreciated, and undercompensated. You're in a battle. You're in a battle for your thoughts. For your, for your emotions, for your attitude, for your actions. Maybe you've been rightly or wrongly accused of something. How will you respond? You're in a battle. Maybe someone makes a joke at your expense. Do you ever walk up to a group of people and they burst out laughing just as you're approaching the circle? How does it make you feel? Probably not laughing at you at all, by the way. But how does it make you feel, right? There's a battle going on for your mind and your heart in that moment. How about when your spouse is grouchy or irritable? They respond to you, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, what about when he is a kind of a grouchy jerk? I mean, I've been told that can happen. 
See, Carol's not here this morning. <laughs> they say something to you, right? It's, it just gets under your skin. It's like, boom. Like it's stuck a splinter under your fingernail. How are you going to respond to all of that? Bite their head off? How about when you're tired? Or sick? Hungry? Nervous? Sad? Lonely? Feeling neglected? You're in combat. You have to walk by the Spirit. You have to walk by the Spirit. What about if you're financially strapped and and feeling the pressure? The bills are mounting. You have to walk by the Spirit. What about if your point of view is challenged or rejected? Maybe you've worked on something at at work and you're called to make a presentation. You've invested a significant amount of time and energy, even above and beyond, in in this particular project, this presentation, this idea. You now embody the idea because you put so much of yourself into it. You come, you make the proposal, and they say, nah. They just blow up four months of your life. How are you going to respond? State your opinion, and somebody says, I don't agree with that. That's stupid. How are you going to respond? See, the battle is everywhere. That's that's the point of it. You're you're in the wilderness of Spotsylvania, as it were. The smoke is swirling. People are screaming in agony. The woods is on fire. The enemy is everywhere. And you're terrified. How will you respond? What will you do? When everything in you says, go back to the old ways. The Spirit of God is saying, no. No. Oh, beloved, I have much more that I want to say. Often when a preacher says that, that means they have nothing more they want to say. But in this case, I have a lot more than I want to say. And I want to do so under this this mini-series, as it were, in Ephesians 5.18 here. We're calling it Living Under the Influence. There's a lot more I want to talk about. We'll be back next week. But let me leave you with something. Let me... I don't want to leave you in the the wilderness without any way out. Let me just leave this with you. The Spirit works through the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. And so, go home on this, and so you and I will never find victory outside of a deep, regular, and lifelong pursuit of Christ through the Scriptures. If you are not seriously pursuing Christ through the Scriptures, you are not walking by the Spirit. Let that be hope. Let it be hope for you. Because you have on your lap the Word of God. And the Spirit wants you to open it up. Be 
being filled. Let's pray. Our Father, the enemy surrounds us. And through the flesh indwells us. We cannot rest. There's no place to go, no safety to be found in this life. And yet you have not left us helpless and hopeless. For you have given us your spirit. May we now obey Paul's command to open up every aspect of our lives to his work. You will form us to the image of Christ, our Father, for you have determined it before the foundation of the world. We have been predestined to it. You've sent your spirit to make it happen. Christ has purchased it for us through his victory on the cross. And yet, moment by moment, day by day, we're in the midst of the fight. May you apply the truth this morning in the place where it needs to be applied in each and every one of your people's hearts. And Lord, for those who are here this morning, for whom Christ is not their brother, who have not given their life to Christ, who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not confessed their sin and acknowledged their helplessness, may this be their day. For as Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. O oh, Father, we beseech you, cause them to be born again. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.